Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The Rio de la Plata is a corpulent snake, mused Ulrich. It nestles around your neck. It strangles you for your wallet or wedding band. Anything of value, he said. Whoever escapes alive? Ulrich said this to no one, not expecting a reply, at least not from me. Since I could hardly understand a word he said, my brain coated in the gauze of the fever or disease or whatever it was I'd been afflicted with, and I was certain I was dying. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Mark Haber, the author of Reinhardt's Garden, an exhilarating fever dream of a novel about the search for the secret of melancholy. The story opens in 1907 in the forests of Uruguay, as Jakob Reinhardt, who hates his native country of Croatia, searches for Emiliano Gomez Carasquilla, a reclusive writer who Reinhardt believes holds the key to understanding melancholy, an all-consuming emotion for Reinhardt, and the subject of a treatise he's desperately trying to complete. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me today. It's really a pleasure to be in New Books Network, Ellie. Thank you for having me. So was your original plan to write this book in one long, dreamy paragraph? It was, actually. That was uh, an aesthetic choice that I I knew from the beginning that I wanted to uh, write. There was uh, several books I'd read that had really been influential to me, uh, like By Night in Chile by Roberto Bolaño and an Austrian writer who's a big influence named Thomas Bernhard. And their books were really, uh, not all of Bolaño's books, but all of Thomas Bernhardt's books were really these unbroken paragraphs. And I loved um, that, 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 that kind of the poetry of language and getting caught up in this kind of stream of conscious wall of, of text. You know, and I think if it's done and done well, it can be really, uh, really captivating and beautiful. It wasn't done to make it difficult or make it off-putting to the reader. That's, that's the last thing I wanted. No, it was beautiful. The story opens with the narrator being carried on a stretcher through the jungle. What brings the characters to the jungle? What are they doing there? They are kind of on this search. And as the book progresses, you realize you you kind of, the reader tends to understand it's either a very futile search, or maybe it's a search with a lot of meaning, or maybe as they say, the cliche, the journey is the destination. Um, but they're searching for this lost um, Latin American writer whose last name is Kaurasquilla, who wrote several books about uh, joy or about melancholy. And the reader can be the judge. But they're looking for this lost uh, prophet, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, do they find him? Um, it's kind of, at the end you do, the reader does kind of, uh, it's told in first person. So the narrator who's unnamed bumps into person in the jungle who may or may not be him. It's very ambiguous. It's kind of left open. Um, and you're not really sure it's, um, our narrator is not really unreliable, but he is very, very, um, obsessed with, uh, kind of the main character, uh, uh, Jacob, who uh, the main character is not the narrator really. Um, 
So you have to kind of take what this person's telling you, the narrator, the reader needs to take what he says with a grain of salt. Well, we, we slowly learn about the narrator, but why do we never learn his name? Um, it's, it's weird. When I'm writing the book or when I'm telling a story, if I feel the name needs to be there, then I put it in. So it's not this game of, of, um, don't, don't give the reader that, but I realized at a certain point that I didn't need to put it in there. It doesn't have to be there. Um, so if it felt like something was missing, there's these, these, I look at writing a lot like painting and I might be laying in bed, you know, during the writing of a novel and I have an idea for just a word and I'll write that word on my phone and use it the next day. And that to me is the equivalent of a painter kind of waking up and saying, you know what, I need a little dash of red or I need a dash of blue. And my tools, of course, are words. And I never felt like it was missing that color. I didn't feel like you needed to know his name. It didn't feel like there was a lack in the book. I think you're right. But we learn a lot about him. Here's what I want to know. Why does he follow Yaakov around the globe? And what's going on with his hypochondria? Yes. So there are certain things I definitely didn't want to say. Um, I didn't care if I used the, the narrator's name, as I said, and I didn't have to. But I didn't want to use the word hypochondria or hypochondriac, which our narrator undoubtedly is. He is being carried in a stretcher. And as the book goes on, the reader uh, starts to realize, I don't know if he's really sick. He has these things called phantom headaches, which is a joke because if it's a phantom, obviously it's not really there. And he has an ankle he thinks is broken, but is assured it's not even twisted. So he's definitely a hypochondriac. But to answer your question, I think his obsession with uh, Jacob is um, like a lot of people who kind of fall under the sway of powerful, narcissistic, uh, egomaniacs, where he, I don't think, has his own identity. He's very young. And he meets this person at a sanatorium. And I think he comes from a very sheltered village in Croatia. And he's never met a person that's as powerful and as, uh, you know, using these large words and feels so self-assured about his opinions that I think he's swept away. And so Jacob, in the narrator's eyes, can do no wrong. And I think we see in today's world that if you start to put people, uh, you know, on pedestals and think they can do no wrong, whatever they say, agree or don't agree, I don't care. Um, it's very dangerous. Yeah. Was was the whole sanatorium, was that a little nod to Thomas Mann? You know what? It's funny. I, I, I'm very familiar with Magic Mountain. I know the book. I do like Thomas Mann, but I've never read that book. I think it was more a nod to the time period and um, maybe a little bit to Kafka. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about the character that the narrator is following around the globe. Yes. Who is he? Uh, who is he? <laughs> okay, so so Jacob Reinhardt, uh, the uh, the namesake of the novel Reinhardt's Garden, is um this. I, I want to say he's kind of a failed intellectual. He is um he has inherited this large. When we come upon him in the book, he's inherited this large tobacco fortune. He is from uh, Croatia. He doesn't like Croatia. And uh, he doesn't like a lot of things. And he's got this obsession with melancholy. He had a twin sister who died uh, at a young age. I think they were both nine. And he has decided that he wants to dedicate his life to that feeling that he had when she died, which was melancholy. And this is also kind of a, a tip of the hat to that time period because, or even earlier, melancholy was studied. The humors of the body um, were studied. And so melancholy was looked at as, uh, in many ways, as a uh, an ailment of artists and maybe signs of greatness, maybe signs of weakness, but it was a, it was a topic of conversation in medicine and art. And he becomes obsessed with this. Um, he's a, a narcissist. He's um, an egomaniac. He's um, obsessed. Yeah. And, and very, very um, 
kind of, you know, singularly focused. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the title. What is his garden? I, I think his garden, I don't know if the garden, even though it's it's the possessive and it's his garden, I think the garden to me would probably be um, the idea of possibility. Because when I think about books and why I love books and why I love stories and imagination, it's the it's the possibility of, of everything, of, of places you can go, places you haven't been. Um, I've never been to Croatia. I've never been to any of the places in this book. Um, you know, hence it's fiction, obviously. And I think the garden just means, you know, there's this kind of, rich, um, you know, tapestry of ideas and possibility in uh, Jacob's mind. Not all of it good, much of it not good. Um, and I think that's where the title came from. I didn't know if the title would stay. That's what I, the title I had and um, Coffeehouse Press that published the book never had an issue with it. There was never a question of if that would stay or not. So mm-hmm. some, some people have said they love the, the, the title and um, I've always thought it's a fine title. I don't love it. It's just, it, it works for the book. It's not like a, sometimes you hear a book title and you're like, oh, that's fantastic. And I think mine works. I, I don't like hear it and go, oh, that's, you know, that's great. So, but it, it's tough. That's so interesting. No, I thought it, it referred to so many different aspects. Of- it kind of does. The jungle, it, it, mm-hmm. the, the joy of writing for me is the things you you discover in hindsight or while you're doing it. And I, I've said this before, and I've heard writers say it, that especially fiction, you don't write because you know things. You know, you write to find out things. You write because you have questions. So um, a lot of times readers will find or discover things before I do. So I kind of interrupt you. What were you going to say, Galit, about the title? Oh, that I thought it was it was remarkably succinct. And it really Thank does you. describe so many aspects of it can refer to so many parts of, of what you've discussed. Yes. Uh, yeah. His whole property in Croatia that he That's, buys with his um, portion, how he um, slowly takes over the neighbor's property. Yeah. And his garden, it, it's basically, it's the world. And even in the jungle, everything is his. He just yeah. assumes everything is his. That's wonderful. I, I really think that a lot of times um, critics and readers and, and can really kind of articulate the meaning or the idea of, of books and things better than, than the author. I mean, what you just said, I'm kind of nodding my head going, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I agree. So why does he hate the entire country of Croatia? This was really me being a, you know, all good artists steal. So um, if you've read Thomas Bernhard, who um, it was this Austrian writer I mentioned, I, I think he died in the 80s. He wrote all of these novels, probably eight or nine novels. They're all just really masterful. And they're all very, uh, these dark monologues, they're all unbroken paragraphs, and he kind of rants, and he's very repetitive. It's also very musical. And um, anyone who read my book and has read Bernhard knows that it, Parts of the book are very much a tip of the hat. I'm not trying to imitate him, but I am trying to take kind of a style he did and make it my own. And, and I think I, I succeeded, I hope. Um, but in Thomas Bernhard's books, he ranted, ranted endlessly about Austria and how much he hated Austria. So I wanted um, I wanted Jacob to have those same feelings about his, his home country. About the, And I also think it fits his character in that he curses this land, his home country, that never appreciated him. You know, Mm -hmm. I think he feels resentful that it never appreciated who he was. Um, But it started off with just borrowing from from Bernhard, who would uh, really just vindictively kind of, you know, these tirades in his novels about how provincial, you know, Vienna is and and, 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 uh, provincial Austria is as a country. And, And he did it to comic effect, but it really was wonderful. 
And why does Reinhardt judge everyone based on their nationalities? Um, I think that it's funny. I think that part of that was, um, I'm one of these writers that if it's funny and it doesn't, um, like I love a good joke. If I can fit in the joke and it, and it still has the quality of, of language, it's got the cadence and it works. So part of it was that I love this idea of separating people um, and their, 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 how good they are in melancholy by nationality. And I think that was kind of a precursor to all the bad things that happened, you know, pre and then World War II with fascism and, um, and of course, the xenophobia and the nationalism of, of the Germans and the Nazis. Um, so it was probably a bit of that and just the ridiculousness of, of saying, well, a Hungarian is the second best melancholic in the world. And there's something very, very absurd about that. Oh, completely. Ulrich is the third character in the jungle yes. with Reinhardt and the narrator. What's his motivation? What's going on there? I think I think Ulrich is it kind of this. Um, he's this kind of. He's not comical himself. He's very very serious. But he's. I think he brings this this relief in that the narrator and Jacob are very kind of uh, you know hyper focused. They're they're in love with books and everything. And I think. Um, Ulrich is is kind of a muscle, you know. He he collects dogs. He's a dog catcher. All of these cities in, in Europe that he catches dogs, and I think he's kind of like a muscle man. He's kind of like the uh, the um, the the protector in a way, and he's very mm-hmm. serious. And um, I think he's kind of a, a good uh, anchor for the the kind of the maniacal leanings of of the narrator and Jacob. Another character described by the narrator is the one legged retired prostitute. Why? Oh. Why does Sonia continue to work and sleep with Reinhardt? Yeah. Well, you know what? Someone said something. Uh, I think I was at, I was in conversation with someone at, uh, in uh, Portland, and they said, and, I, and, and this was meant to be a good thing. I wanted Sonia. She's a minor character, but she's really, I mean, when the book ends, she may or may not be the only one who survives. I don't want to give anything away, but she actually does have agency. So she kind of chooses her lovers. She was a prostitute. She does lose her leg. But she's also maybe the, the the only one that has some common sense. She knows enough to not go on this journey to South America. She has a private life, an inner life. She likes to translate. She likes to write poetry. So I wanted her to be someone that had great depth. And um, in a way, these characters are kind of mansplaining or manspreading themselves across South America. These kind of, um, you know, U- European, um, uh, I don't know, colonizers that go out there on an intellectual mission, but it's really just navel gazing. They're very arrogant and it's all about how great they are. And so she's a minor character, but I think she's essential. So Mm -hmm. her deal is, I think she just is very much um, kind of calls it how it is, you know, and is a little bit bitter. And I don't think at that time period after losing her leg, um, some people would have said, well, I'm done with these people. I'm leaving. I don't know if she had a lot of options. So. Yeah. Cocaine plays an important part role in Reinhardt's life. Yeah. What's going on? Um, what's, what's great about, at least what, what's great about how this book worked out is that I would put things in, I, I wrote Reinhardt's Garden chronologically. So I wrote it as the reader reads it. Of course, I went back every few days when I wrote and edited and did, you know, tweaked and things like that. But I really did write it from beginning to end. And so I would start with something, let's say on page five, maybe, I mentioned that, you know, Sonia is a one-legged retired prostitute. Well, I'm like, haha, that's kind of funny, but I don't know what's going to happen. I've got to figure out a way to back up that joke. I also have to figure out, well, how does she lose her leg? Because I mentioned very early in the book that at one time she had two beautiful legs. So obviously the reader's going to know at some point, well, how did she go from two to one leg? Um, and also the cocaine. The cocaine on like page three was a comic um, 
it was a comic device. Like, oh, that's cocaine. They take, he does a lot of drugs. That's funny. Um, but I also realized as the book went on, no, this actually makes sense. This is what people were kind of um, experiment, you know, experimenting with at the time. It's what Freud was using. And it also is a good excuse for how maniacal Jacob becomes in the jungle, not just because of cocaine use, but because of cocaine withdrawals. And, um, you know, it, it makes it, it kind of justifies how single minded he is. Yeah, as he's carry, being carried through the jungle, the narrator flits back and forth in time, recalling yeah. where they met, back and forth, back and forth. So how did that happen that you spoke and that you wrote in that way? Yeah, so I, I wanted the book to be, um, you know, books, uh, writing and narratives and literature have shapes. And a lot of times there's the traditional kind of triangle where you've got the, the introduction, building climax, building action to the climax, you know, um, decreasing action, conclusion, that kind of thing. And that's, that's fine. That's, there's lots of books that do that and there's nothing wrong with that. It works. Um, but I like books that, that my book kind of has a corkscrew where you're kind of spinning around and, or a parking garage, you're going around in your 1907, you keep going around the next layer, you know, the next level and suddenly you're in 1901, keep driving you in. So back and forth and back and forth. And I wanted to do it in a way that was accessible. I don't want, I didn't want to write a book I'm not trying to write Ulysses. I want a book to be fun, but I also want it to be adventurous and innovative. And I want you to love the story as much as the craft. Um, so I decided early on, that's how I would tell the story. I didn't know exactly how often I would go back from uh, the jungle to Europe and vice versa. And as I wrote the story, it kind of dictated that. When I kind of would go back to the jungle, I'd get bored. I felt the whole book would actually take place in the jungle. And I realized there's not really, there wasn't a lot for me to do. They're lost in a jungle. What else can you do? And so I would go back to Europe and it, it ended up that a lot of the fun, interesting stuff was, was actually happening in the past in Europe. Yeah. Reinhardt muses much about his twin sister. Can you, you've mentioned her already. Can you give yeah. us a, a glimpse of their history? So, so he grew up, uh, as I mentioned, uh, fairly well off in a Croatian town, um, I think a small village, and uh, his parents were tobacco growers, but they owned a, a tobacco estate. So they distributed it and made a lot of money. And he had this sister, and they kind of created their own language. They had this private, really, really um, almost very strange, not even almost very strange relationship where they kind of spoke in their own language. And it kind of their parents, I think, were concerned. I think the village, the, the fellow villagers were concerned, and they became very, very close. They were their, each other's world in a way. And so once, of course, she died um, from typhoid, he, um, Jacob, kind of dedicated his life to it kind of in her honor, studying the feeling that developed from her loss or his loss of her. Yeah. There are several architectural stories lined throughout the book. And Reinhardt has a strange castle built as his yeah, home. He does. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, he he buys an estate in in Stuttgart in Germany, and uh, at first it's a castle that he buys, but he wants to demolish that and build a bigger castle. And he's trying to buy plots of land to have all this property to, to develop a greenhouse and and make a larger castle. So in the novel, there's his first castle and his second castle. And as the castle is getting built, he's hiring and firing different architects. And it kind of follows the, uh, the, the, the direction of his, of his thoughts back and forth, dead ends, zigzags, stairways that lead nowhere. Um, and it kind of follows the, the, the thoughts of a, of a man who is, um, 
uh, I think suffering from many things, but cocaine addiction and an obsession with finding this writer that he may have uh, spent his life misreading, perhaps. And I think that the the castle, in a way, is kind of a stand-in for the jungle, where both places here are, are these places that are very twisted and and uh, not very um, hostile. They're hostile places to uh, to visitors and also to Jacob. Mm-hmm. Um- Reinhardt is fascinated by Richard Wagner, who was also Hitler's favorite composer. Let's talk about that. Yes. Well, that I didn't know, and yet that makes sense. But um, what I love to do with with writing and stories is I love – I really believe literature and, and, and really all art is kind of a conversation with itself. So if I can add lots of fictional plays or movies or books and scientists and, and researchers, but mixed in the fabric of real things, I love to do that. So Wagner, I thought, kind of fit um, Jacob's taste and, and his mindset as far as being very kind of larger than life and very intense. But it also kind of name checks um, a certain time period and it fit with the um, kind of with the aesthetics of the story. And so I wanted to have um, I wanted to incorporate um Different people, you know, Kierkegaard and Wagner and different people in that period of time that would give um, readers kind of a mental check of, okay, he's into this or that's the time period it is. And Wagner just seemed to kind of click into the story and and fit it really well. Another famous person Reinhardt falls in love with is Tolstoy and even visits Yasnaya Polyana. Yes. So how'd that happen? I okay, so I in my twenties, I just was obsessed with, obsessed with Russian literature, and I, I still love it. Um, I, I think nineteenth century Russian literature is one of the like the peaks of just of writing and, and world literature. And I've always been really, really fascinated by Yasnaya Polyana, you know Tolstoy's you know estate. And I, I figured out early in the book, you know, oh that trouble happened with Tolstoy. I say very early, so I knew I was kind of loading things. I load things early, and hopefully. It puts a pressure on me as the writer, but I've got to figure out, well, I've said they're going to Tolstoy, what happens? I've got to figure out what happens. But I really wanted to have um, a, kind of a series of events or, or, or action happen at Tolstoy's estate. And he's kind of in the periphery of the book. Tolstoy kind of pseudo makes an appearance, really. He does, but he doesn't. But I really wanted something to happen there because um, – you know, he, he, in his later life, he became this kind of religious philosopher. He was, he was a bit of a hypocrite, but he, he became this pacifist and, um, wanted to free all the serfs and all these writer wannabes and young, you know, a young Anton Chekhov, the, the writer and the doctor came and visited him. And I thought, what a rich, uh, environment or what a rich backdrop for, uh, for a story. Yeah. I loved that part. Um, so you know how some writers are plotters and some are panters writing from the seat of their pants and from what you're saying it sounds like you you come up with something and then you force yourself to later go back to it so yeah some you do a little bit of plotting at the beginning but everything at the end is by the seat of your pants is that what you're saying it really is i'm I'm kind of i fly by the seat of my pants so um even with the book I wrote after and the one I'm working on now, I, 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 I try to plot things out in my 20s and I would like fill out each chapter and what should happen in this chapter. And a lot of writers do that. And I've just realized that doesn't work for me. Um, what comes first for me is language. I want the language to be really hopefully powerful. And I'll get to where I'm going just because, you know, I think I'm, I'm lucky in that I have a, a pretty rich imagination. 
And I can always go back and fix it. So, you know, it's not like I'm up on stage and people are watching me. If something doesn't work one day, I'll go back and try and fix it the next day. But I really do kind of fly by the seat of my pants because um, I, I know that my mind will, will surprise me. Something will come up that works. And, um, and so that's kind of the way I do it. Yeah, I don't really plow anything out. So you mentioned something that you're working on next. Yeah, so so Coffee House, my publisher, and they're they're great. I love them. Um, they accepted my next novel, which is um, about art. It's about a, a fictional piece of Renaissance art, um, and the book is called Saint Sebastian's Abyss, which is also the title of the work of art by this uh, kind of small, lesser known um, uh, Renaissance artist. And it's really it's it's in contemporary times. It's actually broken up into chapters. So there are small kind of chapters, but the writing style is very, very similar to Reinhardt's garden. So you'll have these chapters that aren't very long. Some are a third of a page, some are two thirds, some are maybe, I think the longest chapter is two pages, but it's still kind of unbroken. So there's no quotation marks and it's each chapter is just a block of text. And, um, and it's about two, the friendship of two men that the, they they built their career studying this piece of art and celebrating and making it known. And the entire novel is one character flying to Berlin to see his friend, the other man. They've had a falling out, haven't spoken in 15 years. So he's flying to Berlin because he got an email that he's on his deathbed. And um, they're going to try and, you know, I think, make peace with themselves. And as he's flying, of course, to Berlin, you flash back and you find out why they had a falling out, um, how they became well-known and famous for discovering this piece of Renaissance art. Um, And then also certain chapters focus on the artist himself. Sounds riveting, and I look forward to it. Thanks, Mark. It's been so much fun talking to you today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for uh, Thanks New Books Network. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I really, I enjoyed it. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking with Mark Haber, author of Reinhardt's Garden, a novel. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.